Okay. Uh, go ahead and start the clock. And I want to say thank you uh, to the people that are streaming. Thank you. Uh, you may have noticed if you've been streaming that we've been having a series of technical issues, and every one of them has been from a completely different source. It's not like we've had one problem that keeps repeating itself, and we're just trying to get it fixed. It's that we've had one problem over here, and we fixed it, and then we had another problem over here, and then another problem over here, and so on. So we just want to tell you something, which is we're doing an entire review of everything that we do in this area so that we won't have, or we'll have less a chance of having any issues ever. So I just want you to know we really care about there's a lot of people in this church that when he can't come, you'll stream in, and there's a lot of people doing that right now, and we want to make that a good experience for you. We don't want feeds dropping or audios dropping and so on. So uh, we just want, to, you to rec- we want you to know that we know, and we're working on it, and we shouldn't be that long before we get this entirely fixed. So thank you for that. All right. Uh, with that, this is technically when I want you to start uh, doing this, Brad, on the recording, but here we go. Uh, I want to say Welcome. And then I want to ask you a question, and I almost want a show of hands. How many people would like to know why it seems like America, at least in parts of it, is going kind of crazy? How many people would like to know the answer to that? Because I sure as heck would. Well, we're going to look at what the answer to that is today. In fact, let me ask it another way. How many people would like to know exactly how close you are to actually joining the crazy? Okay? Because I'm telling you, that's what we're going to see today. It's, this is an amazing thing that we're looking at today, one that I believe is going to feed us for quite some time. So I'm just going to jump right in. We've got Josh Benjamin praying for the sermon for us, and this is such a great thing. I, I've, I've known Josh literally for, you know, ever it seems, and, you know, married and kids and just watching the way that you grow. This is somebody who I literally, and I've said it to him many times, but I'm saying it to everybody, this is somebody you want to look at how he lives his life. Because the way he lives his life is so godly, and you see what God does in it. It's amazing. And I've watched him year after year and what he's done and the way he's pursued it. You, you guys, John and Jenny, you're so lucky to have him as a son-in-law. You know what I mean? Josh, just love you. Would you pray for the sermon? Would you lift up another church? Father God, we come before you this morning and ask that you would prepare our hearts to hear the message that you want to speak to us this morning. Lord, give Kurt the clarity to be able to say exactly what you want him to say. Amen. And I pray that those words and that message would land in a fertile place and that it would be transformative in all of us. And God, I lift up Celebration Christian Community over in West Seattle and just ask that you be with them this morning. Amen. That you would continue to help them grow. Amen. And be effective in their neighborhoods and communities, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Josh. All right. Now, what I, want, what I want us to get a hold of about crazy is this isn't the first go around with crazy in the world, right? And it's actually, it's not like the world is always, it's always crazy to some extent, right? But there's sort of, if you actually track crazy, it goes up and down, okay? There's seasons where it's just more crazy than other ones. And one of the things that I want us to see today is as we're going through Luke, in our Empowered series, and my clicker is, doesn't seem to be working. So if somebody wants to help me out with that, that'd be great. Um, but go ahead and just click it. Uh, what we're doing on this, on Empowered is, is that we're seeing how, how the Holy Spirit comes down and empowers us. But really what we're doing is, we're looking at Luke, and we're watching how Jesus discipled his disciples. 
what the Holy Spirit did, what Jesus did, the whole thing, how he discipled his disciples. And the absolutely incredible thing about what's happened is, is that we're seeing that that's precisely what he's doing with us. We entered it thinking that he, this is how he disciples, and so he'll disciple us if we'll look at how he disciples. And I'm telling you, at this point in time, we're years in, and we have thing after thing after thing after thing where there's a direct parallel between what was going on then and what's going on now. And not in a sort of horoscopish way where you can always make it fit. It's in an extraordinary way. As I've said, if crazy goes in waves, we're in a wave right now. So too are the Jewish people in Jesus' time and the disciples. Now let's just look at our crazy, okay? And, and there, this is not a political sermon, okay? All right? I am not arguing for who you should vote for, or who you shouldn't vote for, and why you should. This is not about conservatives and liberals, even though we're going to talk about that. The reason why I'm using it is because if you want to know what's crazy in America right now, that's just such a striking example of it, okay? We're seeing this thing happen right before our eyes, which, let's be frank, all the pundits, this is something, I've followed politics very closely for many, many years. It's always just been a, an interest of mine, and i followed it very closely, and I'm telling you, even in those that are older than me, so the last 80 years or so, we, we have had other things happen that were weird or crazy or whatever, but we have simply never experienced in our lifetimes what we're experiencing now. It has happened historically before our lifetimes. But in our lifetime, we have never experienced what we're experiencing now where, where things that are happening are catching people that do follow these things, are paid to follow them, are good at following them, and it's catching them by utter surprise. Let's just, we all know where we're probably going on the right, but let's go to the left for a second, okay? But, but let's just look at, you do realize that when Bernie Sanders announced that that was, that was typical, he's done it before, Okay, and he got, you know, one half of 1% of 1% of, you know, whatever. And he, you know, he got a few votes and a few things, but, but it, there was never any thought of him being any factor whatsoever. No pundit would have given you anything that he would have done anything. In his home home state, the day that he announced Hillary Clinton's poll numbers were 84 for Hillary, 16 for Bernie. That was in his home state. In the rest of the country, it was, huh? Okay, so it wasn't even on the radar. And now all of a sudden, you've got him winning primary after primary, and she's got the superdelegates, but if you take the superdelegates out, she's like 150, 200 ahead, that's it. So it's, and, and all the pundits, people talk a lot more about the right because it's just so much more crazy. But, uh, you know, and I'm a conservative, let me say that, okay? I'm not trying to tell anybody what they should be here. The truth is, I don't know if I should take pride in it or not, but I do, that there's a lot of liberals in this church, okay? And I do think that I have impulses in me that are deeply liberal, and we're going to see what that means in a second. But the bottom line is I am a conservative, so all right, we can get that out of the way. But I'm not trying to force anybody to be anything else, but I am trying to force you to be as Christians, okay? That's the one I'm going for. And God will work out all that other stuff. That's, it's not between me and you, it's between you and him, however that means, okay? So, but the bottom line is, is that, is that on the left, we've got this thing that's happening which nobody saw. It's crazy in the sense of where is this coming from? And there's reasons. We can come up with reasons why this is happening. But it doesn't mean that it still isn't just a shock to the system. It's something that's way outside the bounds of what we thought would happen. 
Now that's on the left. On the right, I'm going to say something. I've made jokes about Donald Trump, okay? I want you to know something, okay? I'm just trying to be transparent. When Donald Trump first got into the race, I already knew about him quite a bit just because of the things that I follow and so on. And I already knew that as a human being, I felt like he was you know, not a terribly moral guy and a little unstable and things like that and everything else. But honestly, when he got in the race and I started just being serious as you would be, you know, is this really somebody that you should look at? I actually had a lot of attraction to the thought that a business person would get involved in the government. That was a deeply attractive thought to me. And not, now I'm not talking about a corporate heartless, uh, there's another word that you usually put right there, okay? <laughs> I'm not talking about that kind of thing. What I'm talking about is, is there are lots of hospitals that run in a nonprofit way, and they're able to see their patients in a timely manner, as opposed to the VA. That's a problem in my book, and it's symptomatic. It's not just that. It's a redundancy in government. I know there's a lot of people here that work in government. You know more than anybody else. The redundancy, the thing that it feeds, the thing that happens. There is this thing that happens where the government, in the way that it's run in terms of efficiency, would never survive for a day in the free market because it, isn't, it doesn't treat its customers well. The government is in a very large sense about itself. And now, if you're liberal, you think, but no, it can help, and here's the truth. It can help. And to say the government is always a problem is just not true. Right? There's lots of things that it can do. It's just that the things that it does, it tends oftentimes not to do very well. Okay? And there might be some other way of doing it. So anyway, the bottom line was, I just want you to know as I talk about Trump, you know, I, I started out as somebody who was willing to give him a shot. Okay? And I can't tell you where I'm going to end up. I don't know. The way that this is unfolding is so crazy that I have no idea what's going to happen. But right now, I am having this problem with that particular candidate, and that is, he seems to be doing everything that we teach our kidney gardeners not to do. Yes. And he seems to be doing it in basically the same fashion. It's like an infant with poor impulse control. Okay, now if you really like Donald Trump, you know, that's gonna be offensive to you because you're looking at a certain part of him and you're trying to look past that. Do me a favor, look at that too. Okay, now if you really hate Trump, I want you to look at other things too and understand this is a lot what this sermon's going to be about is, is understanding how we're all a lot closer to crazy than we think and why that is, okay? But I just, you know, this phenomenon that's happening right now, you just, it, it's just, it, anybody, a year ago, anybody, it would be like, you know, right now, if you pick the Sweet 16 brackets, you know, Warren Buffett said, I'll give a billion dollars to anybody who can pick all the games. And the reason why is because mathematically, it's just impossible, right? Much worse than winning the lottery or anything else, okay? It's just basically impossible. That's basically what the current situation would have looked like a year ago to people. The things that are happening would be impossible. People arguing about hand sizes on stage in a national debate for the presidency of the United States in a world that's going to hell? This is unbelievable. It's just, and you know, Cruz sunk down to that level and boom, he was out. You know what I mean? I don't, you know, why Trump, I don't know. But anyway, this isn't about politics. This is about crazy. We could go to the national debt and say, you know, when Bush left office, I think it was six, it might have been seven. It's now 19, it'll be 21 by the time the next president gets there. $21 trillion. 
We only make 17, or I think we're at 19 now, right? 19 trillion as an economy. We'll have more debt than we have the size of our economy. That's crazy. Do that in your own budget, see how it works out. Now in governmental budgets, you can fudge a lot and cover a lot and everything else, but here's the truth. At some point in time, you have to pay. <laughs> Something has to happen. And the fact that we're doing this so pell-mell, 100 miles an hour, pedal to the metal, is unbelievable. There's just this crazy that's going on. It's like, what's happening? Well, let me show you something. That we're in a season of crazy. But let me show you, it's not, we're not alone in it. Watch this. Okay, on the monitor, is there any way you guys can get me the, okay? And if you can't, that's fine. At that time, some Pharisees said to him, get away from here if you want to live. Herod Antipas wants to kill you. Now, remember where we are. We're in Luke. The first eight chapters have been college. Since chapter 9, we're now in 13. We'll get into 14 today. In, uh, from 9 to 13, we've been in masters. In college, you watch and learn. In masters, you do and learn. Okay? Well, at this point in time, right here, it was indicated a little bit two weeks ago, but it comes up right here strong. We now see that Jesus is, he's been walking this way, discipling his disciples, showing us how to live, helping them to do so. And now he's setting his face, he's turning his path, and he's setting his face to Jerusalem, where he's going to die. And he knows he's going to die, and he's not far from it. So the disciples who are thinking that Jesus is always going to be there, like the master's level professor helping them, he isn't going to be there, and they're going to be thrust into a doctoral level without their, without their agreeing to it where they are doing this. Now the Holy Spirit is there and so on, but you get, the, you get the analogy, right? So he set his face to here, and where we are now is, that means we're at the very last part of the master's training, the master's level training that, that we're getting. And next week, wait till you hear this stuff about parables and what it does to us and how it works and so on. And this week is a lot of a setup for that. But just sticking with this week, the thing that I want you to understand is he set his face to Jerusalem, and what I want you to see is the crazy that's going on in the culture at the time. And here is, Herod Antipas wants to kill you. Here's the question. Why? Why? Why does Herod Antipas want to kill him? What exactly is Jesus doing to warrant somebody wanting to kill him? Because here's what he's doing. He's healing people. He's delivering people. He's showing people a better way to live. He's bringing revelation to them about things that bring clarity to them. Here's what he isn't doing. I'm going to bring down Rome. The Jewish tradition of the Messiah is that he's going to bring down Rome. But what's Jesus doing in that regard? Nothing at all. There's absolutely nothing that he's doing that would warrant Herod wanting to kill him. Nothing. To the contrary. In a very real way, it's almost like society's going to be better because he's here. If Herod had looked at it soberly. But Herod is a typical sort of ruler in a ruthless time. And what that means is, it turns out that when you're a king, and things are crazy, paranoia is a job skill. Paranoia is a good thing to have. So, sure, I may kill some people that are doing something that would have never bothered me, but I'm just going to kill them all that might do something. So you can say, well, that's the reason why Herod wants to kill him, but not really. 
Not really. It wouldn't be the, the, the degree to which he's threatening him and doing this kind of stuff. That doesn't really explain it. In the end, what you have to do is you have to go back to Herod himself and realize this is the man who married his brother's wife. And, that, and his niece came along with the deal. And his niece did a great dance in front of him. And, the, and Herod was so aroused by it. Now watch that even though he'd taken John the Baptist captive, for what again? What did John the Baptist do? The only reason he arrested him was because the Jewish people were telling him to arrest him, but he didn't do anything against Herod. Nothing against Herod. Nothing against Rome. And then he would see a dance that made him aroused, and he would cut the guy's head off. Do you understand the kind of human beings? We're dealing with human beings here that have lost all sense of what's right and wrong. Their conscience, as the Bible says, has been hardened to the point that they're able to do things. Now, here's what people do when they're hardening their conscience. They're doing something they know not they're not supposed to be doing, and so what they do is they come up with a reason why it's okay. And what happens is they have to keep coming up with more reasons and more reasons because of all the crazy things that they're doing, and pretty soon they just lose all sense of what's real, of what's right, what's wrong, what's normal, what's proper, what's not. In fact, to the point that Pilate is another ruler. That's, this one's actually from Rome. It's, it's Herod as a tetrarch or king, whatever, over the Jewish people as a somewhat Jewish person. But the bottom line is Pilate is a Roman, and he's, as a Roman, he's done all kinds of immoral things too. And you remember what happens is, is that Pilate says to Jesus when he's interviewing him at the very end, being told to put him to death, Pilate says, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. Now, he's, notice he's not saying yes and he's not saying no. He's saying, you say that I'm a king. But then watch. But understand why I actually came. It wasn't to be a king. In a very real way, if Herod had been listening, what Jesus is saying to him is, you say I'm a king, I'm not, I'm not receiving or denying it. I'm just telling you, here's what I'm actually about. And you don't have any threat from this. Because what I'm about is, for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I've come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is the truth listens to my voice. Or let me paraphrase that. Everyone who is in the truth, if your heart, conscience isn't hardened, you hear it and it kind of triggers in you, right? When you hear the truth, even no matter what you're thinking, you kind of go, that sounds true. And it stops you and it makes you rethink what you're thinking. That's what it should do, right? But look where he's gotten to. What is truth? As a guy whose moral equivalency is so screwed up, that he's totally lost any connection to the truth, he's saying what a lot of people do, even in our modern age. There's no truth. It's all just relative, right? There's no truth. See, it's that same impulse. And this is the crazy that they're in now. Now, there's a brief little sidebar, and I'm going to do this really quick. It could be its own sermon. It's just not the one I felt like God wanted me to do today. But I just want to catch this here because I want you to see something that's happening. Jesus is about to go to Jerusalem and die. And despite the fact that he says so right now to the disciples, he knows they don't understand it at all. Their own kind of lack of understanding, denial, craziness. He literally would say, right now, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to die. And they don't get it. <laughs> but what he does is, is he says it in such a way as when he dies, the Holy Spirit will bring back to their remembrance what he said right now. And they'll be comforted that nobody took Jesus' life from him. 
he offered it up. See? So here's what he says. Go tell that fox. Does this sound like a guy who's hiding from Herod? Herod's a powerful guy. You can say that, but you'll usually end up dead. So he's not hiding from anything. Go tell that fox that I'll keep on casting out demons and healing people today, tomorrow, and then listen to this, on the third day. What's he referring to on the third day? What's he bringing to mind? His resurrection, right? On the third day, I'll accomplish my purpose. Yes, today, tomorrow, and the next day, I must proceed on my way, for it wouldn't do for a prophet of God to be killed except in Jerusalem. What did the disciples think he was saying when he said that? It wouldn't do for me to die except in Jerusalem. Because, as he goes on to say, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones God's messenger. <laughs> That's who he is. How often I have wanted to gather your children together as a hen protects her chick beneath her wings, but you wouldn't let me. And now look, your house is abandoned and you'll never see me again until you say, Blessing on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Let me, let me take this whole thing and, and ratchet it to a little deeper level for you. Watch this. A year ago, last January, not this January, but the last January, I was out praying. I felt like God told me that he, had, he was, in a Romans 1 fashion, he was withdrawing his protection. Now, that doesn't mean that he was judging us, and it doesn't mean he was withdrawing it completely. It's the Romans 1 progression of withdrawal and that what that is is just we looked at it last week a little bit everything about God that can be known has been made by him in creation so whether you know him or not you're without excuse if you thoughtfully look at the things that are made you will see what you need to see but he gave us real free will so you can push away the truth if you want and he'll let you and he'll put up with it He'll have enormous patience. He'll have enormous mercy. He'll have an enormous amount of time where he puts up with it, but at some point in time, the scale tips, and for God to continue to be merciful would actually be harmful, devastatingly so. In other words, if you were involved in a behavior that was sending you to hell, but God gave you mercy right up until you died and then went to hell, how's that loving? So what God does is he says, when you get to a certain point, I go ahead and withdraw my presence, I let you start experiencing the consequences of your decision at a whole new level. And we have seen this kind of thing happen all throughout last year. And we've seen it in our culture. It's one of the things I think is happening in politics right now. The presence of God has been withdrawn to a degree from America, not all the way, but it's been withdrawn, and so crazy can flourish. The consequences of our decision, see? You make these decisions, and then you go, wow, that was a really bad decision. I'm going to tell a joke right now, and I didn't even think I was going to do this. And I'm, can, I get, can I tell it? I'm sorry. I'm, I'm going to do it anonymously, but I, but I just needed to get permission a little bit by a blink of the eyes or something, okay? Because I didn't know I was going to do this until right now, but okay, listen to this one. So I'm at lunch, really, really great guy, getting to know each other, having a great time, this person is very smart and has a way of saying things that are just very clever. And it's not that he's trying to be funny. He just is very smart. And he says things in a, in a way that is just hilarious, right? So we were talking about family, and we get to sister, and, and, and I say, so tell me about your sister. Oh, man, love my sister. We get along so well. We're so tight. We're so good. It's awesome. He said, but I do want to tell you, she is just one of these people who tends to make really bad decisions all the time. 
And he said, you know, when she's, when she's making a decision, my dad and I have gotten into the habit of saying to her, you know, geez, you know, you made a decision back there, and we told you it was going to go bad, and then it went bad. And so now we're telling you this decision's going to go bad too. And she got to saying back to us, well, if I had a time machine, I'd go back and I'd, I'd change the decision. I'd make a different decision, right? And so he'd heard that several times, and then he said, finally, it occurred to me. And so I said to her, I said, you know, I think what we're going for here is that you start making decisions that don't require a time machine. <laughs> now, I want to tell you, you'll laugh at that right now, but you'll think about that later, and it'll get funnier and funnier and funnier. And for two days, it just got funnier and funnier. You need to make decisions that don't require a time machine. <laughs> I just think that's the greatest. Okay, so, all right. But this is this thing where when God withdraws his protection, what he's doing is letting us experience consequences of what we're choosing in a bigger way in hopes that we'll repent and stop making decisions that require a time machine. Start making the right decisions. Are, are we there? Okay. So that's what we're going for. That's what God is trying to do when he does these Romans things. And that's exactly what's being played out right here in these verses. Because what he's saying is, Jerusalem, I love you so much. Had you repented, I would have brought you in. I would have brought you near. I would have covered you. I would have quickened you. I would have revealed to you. I would have done all these things. But because you kept pushing me away, you're going to get to a place to where you experience the consequences of your decisions to where you cease to exist. You do realize that from the time that Jesus said this, it's 39 years, a year short, of a generation, which is what he said, this generation will not pass away. You do realize that 39 years from now, Jerusalem has been there for thousands of years. It'd be like saying Washington, D.C., that's only been there for what? As a capital of the nation, a couple hundred? For thousands of years, Jerusalem, well, it's a thousand years since David, but, but for a thousand years it's been there, and it is going to cease to exist. It's not going to be there. Okay, are we seeing the feel of this passage now? You see, he's trying to say things are way out of whack and they're going to be set right again. But you're not going to like how it happens. So we go back now, okay? What we've seen is we've seen how the governmental authorities, the Jewish ones and the Roman ones, are whack. Now what we're going to see is how the religious ones are too. Watch this. One Sabbath, he went out to eat at the house of one of the leading Pharisees, and they were watching him closely. There in front of him was a man whose body was swollen with fluid. In response, Jesus asked the law experts and the Pharisees, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? We've talked about Sabbath a lot in here. I'm just going to give you the briefest way of understanding it. Here's what Sabbath is about. The world has we, God gave dominion of the world to us. We gave it away to Satan in the garden. So the world has been under corruption and under an evil influence ever since. And so it would be very easy to get under that and have that evil take dominion of you, have the world take dominion of you. But he made you to be an overcomer. And what he wants us to do, even right now to today, to every person in this sanctuary, you should be taking a Sabbath. And if you don't, you're in peril of coming under dominion. 
it is important to note two things about Sabbath in the law. There's the, there's the stuff about God, and then there's the stuff about life. But right in the middle of them is the stuff about Sabbath. It's right in the middle for a reason. It's the only one that God says, if they don't take Sabbath, kill them. Everything else you'd think that you could get killed for, that's the one you get killed for. Why? Because when a person gets under it, they're not able to bring life anymore. They're under dominion of something that is killing them, and they're in trouble. And they're, all right? So the point is, is here's what Sabbath is about. It's a corrupted world that you live in, and I'm trying to let you have a day. Like we got on, on uh, Friday in our day off, and we grabbed Jan, and we went up to Mukilteo and found this place called Arnie's. I'd never heard of it before. But it sits out over the water, and you get to see the Olympics, and you get to see the water, and you get to see the ferries going back and forth. And it was like awesome. It was like, wow, this is so cool. This is so beautiful. And truly in the Northwest, because nice is parceled out, when you get it, it's so much nicer, right? It's not that it actually is nicer, it just feels nicer. And so we have our blankets on because it's cold, but we are just in the middle of, even though this is a corrupted, falling, perverted world, look at the beauty that God has in it. Remember who's in control. God has got this, right? So it would almost be like this. This is almost the question that Jesus could have asked him. Sabbath is the day that's the best day to heal somebody because it totally speaks to what Sabbath is about. Freeing people that are in bondage. Freeing people that have something wrong with them. Freeing somebody who has dropsy, which is probably what it was. It doesn't say exactly, but it's probably what it was. And the point is that that's, that's a mild case. I could have got you some really gross ones. Thank me for not doing that to you. Okay, you can, you can swell up to the point that your skin starts separating. So this is a painful, ridiculous thing to have happen to you that causes you not to be able to work, that causes all kinds of problems in your life, right? And the point is, is that Jesus is coming to them and he's saying, is it right for me to help this person on Sabbath, to heal this person? Now, here's the unbelievable thing, and this is really getting to the heart of what crazy really is. They kept silent. It almost would have been better if they'd have said, the reason why you shouldn't heal and then go into some doctrinal theological explanation of why not to heal. Here's the reason why they kept silent. Every other time that they'd confronted Jesus about this kind of stuff, he always made a fool of them. He always showed them how stupid it was what they were saying, that it was completely illogical. He's gonna do it again here. But the bottom line is, they're to the point to where they know that he's going to say something that's going to make them look like a fool. Well, at that point in time, why don't they start listening to him? <laughs> if I can't have a comeback and explain to you why it's not okay to heal on Sabbath, if I can't do that, why don't I start saying it's okay? Why do I, despite the reason, the facts, why do I still hold on to that it's not okay? You see it? Now, this is going to happen again. They keep silent, so here's what he does. He heals the man, and he sends him away, right? And then what he does is, now watch. See, now, this is all going to where we're going. He uses reason. Look, if you have a son or an ox that falls into a well, look, if you have a son that falls into a well, are you telling me you're not going to save the son from the well because it's Sabbath? You don't just do it with your son. You do it with your ox. So what? 
how in the world could you not think it was okay to heal this guy? This is crazy of you. You're supposed to be the experts, <laughs> the religious leaders. You're supposed to be the people that are showing people who God is. And you don't get this. You see, where, you see the crazy that's coming out here? And so, and to this they could find no answer. Now, here's the principle that we're really pulling out of this. Watch this. They couldn't defend themselves. They had no reasons they could bring up as to why they believed as they did, but they held on to it anyway. That's crazy. Actually, it turns out it's human. Tragically human. Some of you have had the unfortunate reality of working in a church before. You know, we're looking at trying to hire somebody because, you know, God's blessed us and, and we really need it. And we're looking at somebody to take on some responsibilities that are very important. And, and we're, you know, we're, we've got some people coming around and stuff that we're looking at and praying about, trying to figure out what God's doing and all that. And when the property sells, you know, we actually can do it now, but when the property sells, it'll be like, and we're not going to spend money because we've got it. To the contrary, we're actually being incredibly conservative about what we're doing with everything. But the bottom line is, is that, is that we're looking for somebody and, and this kind of thing. And what I want you to see, what I want you to know about me is, is I'm really hesitant to hire anybody that hasn't had two really bad experiences in church. And the reason why is because they don't know what church is. They think it's a bunch of really godly people doing godly things in a godly way. Man, I wish it was that. I can sure tell you we're all trying to do that. But what it actually is, is a bunch of failed human beings doing things in a flawed way, despite their best heart and intention to try and do it right. And they will do things that will harm you. They will do things that are stupid. They will do things that are crazy. Okay? And so what you got to do is, is you got to start understanding it. Let me just give you one example of what crazy looks like. We've got the politics, but here, I'm going to give you a smaller example. I'm in Los Angeles. I'm working at a church where I had a nice, good, bad experience that taught me a lot. I'm, I'm looking at Jackson Hole and I'm watching. In Jackson Hole, there was a miracle that happened some years ago, which, which was they, had a, they started a charismatic church and at that point in time, there got to be seven charismatic bodies in the valley. Teton Valley, which is Moran and Jackson and parts in between. And, and there's seven charismatic churches, gatherings and so on. One of them is Assembly of God Church that has its own building. Well, they, they're without a pastor, and everybody says, my dad is not a pastor, not trained for it or anything else, but, the, but they, everybody says, Don, you're supposed to be the pastor, and begrudgingly. I love you, Dad. He's listening to it. I love you. Thank you for doing it. The biggest miracle I've ever seen happen in a church. Literally, every, over the next couple of years, every single charismatic fellowship in the valley closed to join this church and what God was doing there. To this day, even the Assembly of God one, the Assembly of God people said, you can't close the doors. We own a building there. And they said, fine, but nobody's going to be there. So they sold the building. Now, here's what happened in these church services. This is still, to this day, this is my vision of what church is supposed to be. Every single person that went to that church had some significant ministry in the community. 
real, genuine. They didn't do small groups so that they could get together. They were too busy doing their ministries. And they would do the ministry. The only reason they got together on Sunday was to come worship the Lord together, be edified, be built up, lift each other's hands, and then go back out and minister. And this was, at that point in time, maybe 200 people. Well, they got bigger than that and things, everything else. But anyway, my dad got to the point to where he just, he never really wanted to be a pastor and for reasons that, were, that are his own and so on. He stepped down and they went and hired a guy. And the guy they hired was, should have been great. He was, he was a big name in the charismatic circles and so on. He'd been, for those of you who are around, around long enough to know what this means, he'd been part of the shepherding movement. Uh, but to his credit, the shepherding movement was simply discipleship gone horribly wrong ultimately. But in the beginning, it was, it was shepherding movement came out of a bunch of hippies that were doing drugs and found Jesus and were still doing drugs and worshiping Jesus. And so shepherding movement came about, you know, maybe you should quit doing the drugs, you know? And so that's where the shepherding movement started, and that was good. That was a helpful impulse, you know? But the bottom line is it turned into, we're going to tell you what to do. And always remember something. God gave us free will. So you have to treat everybody in your life as if they have free will. You have to do that. Okay? And they forgot that. They were telling people what to do. So it was bad. And to his credit, this guy actually left it because he saw what was happening. He said, this isn't godly. And he quietly tried to dissociate himself from it. And what happened was one of the main shepherding people who this guy had given up his life to be his right arm. What happened was is that, is that this guy embarrassed him, humiliated him, dehumanized him. He just treated him so poorly. And it was just so horrible. So this guy had baggage when he came to the church. And the baggage that he had was his charismatics are crazy. Now we're charismatics. And I get, I get that we can be crazy, but I think we're where we're supposed to be as a charismatic, as a fully charismatic body. And I don't think we're fully charismatic right now. But as a body who's moving towards being truly empowered by God, and what that actually means, as opposed to what other things can mean, I think we're going in exactly the right direction. I'm very happy about it. I'm very pleased. Thank you, God. But the bottom line is, is his orientation was, I'm just going to not do this. So what happened was the church was hemorrhaging people. People were leaving and the numbers were dropping precipitously. And it wasn't because they just didn't like the theology. It was because he was hurting them. The first words he ever spoke to me in my life when I got there were, oh, the eagle has landed, or should I say the vulture? That's the first words he said to me. So, you know, whatever. But the bottom line is, is that we came alongside and got to be friends and, and started working at the church and we stabilized the situation. And I'm not patting myself on the back when I say that, but truly... The entire council and over half of the eldership had come to me within the last year of the story I'm about to tell you, had come to me within the last year wanting to leave the church. And I had asked them to stay and for the reasons why and so on. You know, it was an independent church and what could happen and so on. So anyway, it stabilized and it actually started growing again. And when it started growing again, he, I guess I want to be careful about his motive, but he thought that this was his moment to move. And so without, any, without anybody knowing it, independent church, and he had control over it, he called the Presbyterian denomination and was going to take the church and make it Presbyterian. And that's fine. There's Presbyterian charismatics and so on. There's nothing wrong with Presbyterian. Uh, Bell Pres is probably my favorite church in the world besides here. Okay, I love what they do and who they are. But the bottom line is he was going to do something that was 
And so, uh, and what he did was he came to me and he said, I think it's time for you to be a senior pastor. You need to look for, he wasn't firing me. He just said, stay here until you can, but look for another church and take it and you should go do that. And I was fine with that. He, was, he wasn't wrong about that. It was time. Everything else, I didn't like it, you know what I mean? But the bottom line is, is, is I then found out about that he was trying to take church Presbyterian. He was just trying to get me out of the way. So what I did to people in the town, I just, to people in the church, is I just said, look, I'm going, because if I don't go, you'll make it about me versus him, and it's not about me versus him. It's about what God wants this church to be, and that's you guys. I'm leaving. But you have to know this is happening. And then they all came back to me and said, you told us we couldn't leave. How come you get to? <laughs> and then this thing just went to hell in a handbasket. Now, here's, what, here's the reason why I'm telling this story. When it went to hell in a handbasket, what happened was you could go out to lunch with somebody. It wasn't just me. It was everybody. It was like God, I, I look at it afterwards. I now look at it as God stuck his finger in the stills waters that he had produced there, and he went like this. And he created ripples so that it was impossible for people to talk. Remember the Tower of Babel? He confused the languages. And I'm telling you, this isn't literally what would happen, but it was very much this. You would sit down with somebody and you would say, okay, now, we're having a lot of confusion. There's a lot of misunderstanding. There's a lot of issues here. But let's just get to some place that we can all agree on. So let's just start with the sky is blue. Do we all agree that the sky is blue? And the answer that you would get back is, is how can you say the sky is pink? I didn't say the sky was pink. I said the sky was blue. Kurt, what are you saying? It's pink. Or whoever else, what are you saying? It's, it's, it's not pink. It's blue. What are you? And I mean, it was just, it was just confusion reigned. Now, I want to say, the minute it was over, God had his purposes, one of which was to get me here. But when, as soon as it was over, it went right back to everybody being able to communicate again as if the crazy hadn't happened. So understand something about this principle that we're talking about. When God's in something, you have oneness, commonality, understanding, oneness. When God isn't in something, we like to think that evolutionary biology and so on, that people have a, a, a benefit in collaborating, and so that's why people stay together. But the truth is, and this is by researchers, not by me, by researchers, the truth is, what you'll find is, is that societies will actually totally disintegrate. There's lots of research that's been done on communes. If that commune has a religious orientation, it will last. If it doesn't, it won't. That ought to tell you something. It's hard to be one with other people. And there's something about God in your life that makes it possible to be one with one another. So, having said all this, here's what I want you to, here's what I want you to get a hold of. I want you to see this. Can you actually do it the other way, you guys, where I can see what's coming up? Thanks. This is righteous mind, okay? This, is this ought to be required reading for every single person on the face of the earth, honestly. It absolutely should be required reading for every person on earth. The earth would be a much better place if people understood what's in this book. But let me make something clear. This is not a Christian book. This is as far from a Christian book as you could ever get. 
He, he, he considers God to be a myth and what people do and it's a manufacturing of the brain and he explains in a way and, and even harmful effects at some points, although not ultimately and so on. But, but the bottom line is this guy believes in evolutionary biology. If you know what that means, it just means that our brains develop a certain way because of evolution. And that's why we have all these illusions of community and so on. It really comes from evolutionary needs to not die by getting eaten by a tiger or something, right? And so you got all these dimensions along which our brains evolved so that we could survive. And it was survival of the fittest. Okay, you get, you get the point? Now, I'm going to briefly tell you what's in this book. It's only going to take me a second. I see some yawns. Should we get up and stretch for a second? <laughs> I don't want to lose you right now because this is the funnest part of the whole thing for me. Okay? So I just want you to see this. The image, he uses two basic images or illustrations. Here's one of them. An elephant and a man on top of it. Now, when we see that, here's what we automatically do. We think the guy on top of that elephant is telling that elephant where to go. Here's what's actually happening. The elephant's going where it wants to go, and the guy's on top of there saying why the elephant went that way. Ad hoc, after the fact, explaining why it happened. Here's what this guy's saying. You can have a guy on top of an elephant telling an elephant where to go, and you can train him. We get that. And that would be the ideal sense. But what this guy's pointing out is he's saying, in a world out, absent God, here's the truth about us. There is this thing that's an elephant in us. It is, it's the instantaneous reaction that you have to any piece of information before you've ever thought about it. You have an instantaneous thought about what's right and what's wrong. And then what your reason does, we like to think our reason tells our emotions what to do, or tells these impulses what to do. But the truth is, what our reason is actually doing, it's being like a little press secretary, and it's just spinning whatever happened into a narrative. It's not true, it's just coming up with a reason why it seems true. So what it's saying is, is reason is at the mercy of impulse, of the sense of things. Now, I'm going to do a test with you so that you can all see what this means. This will be fun, okay? Although it's a little coarse, and so I count on us all being adults here, okay? Because we're going to talk about something that's going to be repulsive to you, okay? And it's supposed to be repulsive to you, and we're, but you need to do it to understand it. What these guys do is they did, this, they did this research all over the world, okay? So it wasn't about American culture and so on. It was all over the world, everywhere they went. Africa, India, everywhere they went, islands, uh, tribes, everything, they, everywhere they went, they found the same thing if they did this. If they came to people and they said, sorry, but you're going with me, right? Should a brother and sister sleep together? Now, when you hear that, you go, no, <laughs> across the world. Culture, societies, training, everything. Everybody goes, no, of course not. But now watch. So then the researchers trained to say, why not? And we all have a reason. And the reason, particularly in the Western world, is because is we know about genetics and DNA. Oh, because you'll have babies that'll be deformed. The researcher will say, and this is true, actually deformities come from close inbreeding over generations. The chance of a brother and a sister having a baby that's deformed is only very slightly higher than anybody's chance of having a baby that's got an issue. It's actually not a real, it's a very small chance of it happening. And so what, now watch what the research is doing. They're taking away the reason you have for having this moral instantaneous revulsion. 
to it. Of course, brothers and sisters. So then you take away the reason and you say, now that you don't have that reason anymore, now what do you think? What's your reason for it? Do you think it's okay now? No, it's not okay. Well, why? So they have to think. The re this is in Western cultures, this will be ours. We'll say, well, because everybody thinks it's gross and so they'll think you're gross, right? Everybody's revolted by it and so they'll be revolted by you for doing that so you'll be ostracized. And so here's what the researcher does. Okay, I got it, okay. So let's put the brother and the sister on a deserted island and they're all alone and they're never gonna be rescued. So there's no chance of ever anybody ever finding out anything about this. Now, is it still wrong? See, somebody already said, it. yes, of course it's still wrong. But here's what the problem is, why? And you can keep doing this until people will literally run out of ideas but they'll still think it's wrong. In fact, you can go so far as to do this. You can actually take it all the way around the block and you can say to them, okay, let's take this situation. The brother and the sister are the two last people on the face of the earth. And they have to reproduce in order to continue the human race. Is it wrong now? And here's what people will say. Absolutely, it's wrong. I get that it may have to happen. It's a lot like the same, they do the same test with cannibalism, right? I mean, you don't want to eat somebody's, right? I mean, this is getting gross, right? So I'll stop, okay? <laughs> but you see, it's just revolting to think about doing either one of those two things, isn't it? But the fact is, you can, over, you can get to a place to where there's actually a reason to do it, but here's the problem. You can come up with a good reason why this should happen. I'm going to survive unless I do, right? But even then, you still are revolted by it. So the question that these guys asked was, what's that? Because there's something that's underneath our reason that is giving us a sense of right and wrong. Where's that coming from? It gives us an instantaneous sense before our thoughts ever kick in, and reason is the handmaiden of the sense, the reaction. It's not the dictator. So with this in mind, now watch. So what they did is, is they said, it turns out that what we get to is these six planks. There was five, and then this guy found a sixth, okay? So these six planks, and we've known this in social, in psychology, social psychology for a long time, okay? This isn't the first guy to come up with it. He discovered them more deeply and in a different mix and in a different way, and that's why he becomes important. But here's what he does. He says, you can have a plank that is care and it's opposite harm, a plank that's fairness and it's opposite cheating. A plank that's loyalty and it's opposite betrayal. A plank that's authority and it's opposite subversion. A, pl a plank that's sanctity, God, the sense of holiness, and degradation. A sense of liberty and oppression. So you have six receptors. Now, I'm about to show you something, and I told you I wasn't trying to talk you into being conservative or liberal or anything else, and I am not. Here's what I am doing. I'm telling you what this guy found, and in order to understand why it's so important what he found, I need to tell you something about this guy. Extremely liberal person. The kind of person who felt very comfortable going to societies where social psychologists get together, and they talk about liberalism as the highest noble, and conservatism as mental defect. They make jokes about it, but they, they're serious about it too. They write papers about what's wrong with conservative brains that they don't care about the things they should care about. 
but they don't have empathy. See? Now, understand what this guy's whole reason for his book was. He was saying this. How can somebody on the left be utterly and completely convinced that they're right and to the point that they absolutely cannot see any reason whatsoever for what this other person thinks, and yet the other person can think the exact same thing, just opposite. How can that happen? This guy is a deep, committed liberal, and to this day, despite the findings I'm going to show you, he still remains a liberal, okay? But what he has become is much less judgmental. Now right there, just for the heck of it, can, you just, can we just all own that for a second? That if you really get what I'm about to say and what they found in their research right now, you'll become less judgmental about people that don't agree with you. And right there, that's a good. Because here's what never works. A liberal or a conservative posts somebody and then the person from the other side says, you are so stupid, how could you possibly believe that? Here's what never works. Somebody coming along and saying, oh my God, now that you've explained it so clearly, I totally agree with you. <laughs> when you're stupid, it separates you. And that's what people think about the other side. Because they can't see what they're thinking at all. I'm going to give you a way to see what they're thinking. This is what his research showed. When they, when they found these six dimensions, and then they went around the world, and they found the, the equivalence of what we call liberals. You know, liberal is liberal is get a different tag in different places. When they found the equivalent, here's what they found, okay? Liberals, you see, they, they liken it to a taste receptor, your tongue, right? And what it is, say it has six different tastes, and when you eat something, some of your receptors are gonna be more sensitive to sweet, or more to salt, or more sensitive to sour, see? And so if you're more sensitive to one of these things, then you're gonna overweight that flavor in that food. Do you see it? That's why people like different foods, because their receptors are matched and mixed differently. And so I think that food's really great, but you don't because your receptors don't receive it that way. Do you see it? They find with liberals, care and harm. And the truth is, I'm just going to have to ask, Josh Foreman wrote a brilliant blog on all of this. And it's one of the reasons I read Righteous Mind. I always was, already had planned to read it, but when I read Josh's blog about a year and a half ago, I decided I got to read that book and finally got to it. But Josh, is this your drawing or is this from the book? Because I'm reading it by Kindle, and it, it's a mix? Okay, thank you. But the point is, is I think it's fair to say, isn't it, Josh, that in truth, the way he describes it in the book, take that care harm one and make it about twice as big. Take the liberty oppression and the fairness cheating and, and knock them down. The thicker the line, the more that receptor fires for you. And what they found was is that when liberals hear things, care harm is by far the thing that they hear that triggers in them the most. That's the way their brain fires. And it goes care, empathy. See? And it's hugely important. Okay? Now, now, this is the research to me. Okay? Help me. Watch. When they did conservatives, here's what they found. They found that conservatives were actually weighing all of these things in somewhat equal proportion. Different degrees, any particular conservative, but they found this was the case. In fact, let me, let me tell you, actually, let me show you something about what they found. This is from the book about this point. Watch this. Uh, wait, where's, where'd, it, where'd it go? The current American culture where we have found can be seen as arising from the fact that liberals try to create a moral, morality relying primarily on the Care Harm Foundation. 
with additional support from Fairness Cheating and Liberty Oppression Foundations. Conservatives, now listen to this, this will be very important in a moment, especially religious conservatives use all six foundations, including loyalty, betrayal, authority, subversion, sanctity, degradation. Now that is not the common perception, is it? Christians are narrow-minded bigots. That's the common perception. The research shows Christians are actually the most balanced in the way that they think about things. I'm going to show you why that is in a second. But for right now, I need to go backwards, and I want you to stay on here. Let me give you an example of how this works, okay? There's a girl in high school, and she gets pregnant. The person whose receptors are very strong towards care, what they say is help her. You've got to help her, right? And anything you do that doesn't seem like help is bad and lacking in empathy because I feel empathy. You're not responding empathetically like you should, so there's something wrong with you. That's the reaction, right? Now, here's what the other person is doing. The other person is saying, I really do care, but, but let's think about this for a second because if we, we end up helping this high school girl in a way that she never ends up that she never ends up finding out the satisfaction of hard work and accomplishment and, and something like this, that what she can do is she can end up being a person that doesn't actualize as a human being. And that's bad. That's harming her. You helped her with her baby, but you did it and it harmed her. And it'll harm her child, who will grow up without a parent who understands what it is to actualize as a human being. You see the care that's in that? But the care is spread across a broader range of things. Do you see it? Now that's what here. Here's, here's the point. If there is no God in the world, this man has found a truth. There is an elephant in our lives, a taste receptor that has six different dimensions, and it is the elephant, and your reason is a slave to it, and so you're a slave to it. You do not control it. You might have some very marginal effects on it, but pretty much it trolls you. Got it? But guess what? What if there is a God? In fact, what if the Bible 2,000 years ago talked about the very same principles this research found a couple of years ago? Because here's what the Bible has to say about this. Once you were slaves of sin. Do you see it? See what the Bible's saying? You were slaves to your sin. You thought you could stop sinning because you didn't want to for whatever reason. Whatever your conscience was saying was bad, and you thought you could stop doing that, and it turns out you can't. If you'll look thoughtfully and carefully at your life, you'll find out you're a slave to this thing in you, this sense of things. You're a slave to something in you. You see it? But then here's what the Bible says, and this is the opposite again of what popular culture says. The Bible says, now you're free from slavery to sin. Here's what the world says. When you don't know God, you're free to do anything you want to do. When you do know God, you're a slave to what he wants you to do. That's what, the, that's what the culture says. Here's what the Bible says. You're a slave to things before you're born again and reconnected to God 
in a way that the Holy Spirit is inside of you, quickening you to truth. You remember what we looked at earlier? Pilate and immoral people saying, what is truth? And so they're enslaved to their baser instincts. But when you have the Holy Spirit of you, you're not hardening your conscience anymore against the sense of right and wrong. When you have the Holy Spirit inside of you, what's he doing with you? He's teaching you, isn't he? Isn't that what exactly what the scripture says the Holy Spirit does with you? Look, so, oh, oh, by the way, sorry. God says to Noah, I'm going to destroy the earth because people are, the earth is now filled with violence. What we'll say from evolutionary biology, here's what we'll say. And this is, sorry, you got to just step back with me. Here's what people will say. Evolutionary biologists will say, there's such a strong desire to survive as a culture that people coming together and collaborating will cause communities to come together and form that are harmonious. They'll have the certain bad influence people that'll come in, but the community will band together and throw them out. And so what they're saying is, is left to its own, human nature will come to a place of peace. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. You see it? It'll come to a resting peace. It's religion and all that stuff that makes things bad. But here's what this guy found in their research and other people's research. Here's what they found, as I said earlier. Communities that have a religious orientation stay together. Mennonites, Amish, very long periods of time against enormous influences. There were lots of communes in the 60s. There's probably people sitting here that lived in one at one point in time. They didn't last. How'd they go? See, there's a variable in human nature that a person that doesn't believe in God cannot admit to, and that is that there's evil. There's an impulse towards evil. Here's what we do that dogs and cats and bears and lions do. We kill each other, not just for sport. We kill each other out of petty motives. Lions don't get in a spat over who got, I don't you know, you see what I'm saying? They, they may get in a fight and they'll figure out who gets it, but they don't go lay a trap and kill each other. What, what society will tell us, what anybody who looks at this stuff seriously will tell you is, if you think that the natural state of human beings left to their own is peace, you are a terrible historian. Because the truth of the matter is, the natural state of mankind is what the Bible told us it was. What God said, when people were on their own and God wasn't doing anything and he was letting them see the consequences of what it was to not choose him, he said, I've decided to destroy all living creatures. Why? Because they filled the earth with violence. Cain slew Abel. Why? <laughs> it's stupid. It's crazy. We do. When we get disconnected from God, we get crazy. We come up with reasons why things make sense, but they don't actually make sense. They're not actually true. They don't actually work, and they end in devastation and destruction. That's what's true. But what is also true is, as we've been saying, if you have the Holy Spirit, the helper, the Father sends him in my name, and he teaches you all things. He brings remembrance of everything I've said to you. Look, he teaches you everything. When the Holy Spirit's inside of you, and you want to do something really stupid, really crazy, because somebody offended you, and you're, the hair on the back of your neck is up, and you want to harm them, the Holy Spirit comes to you and says, don't do that. <laughs> and if you've hardened your conscience, then you still don't listen to it. 
But the point is, when the Holy Spirit says that, he's working every angle in you, and he knows the part where he can penetrate through the elephant. He knows the thing that he can do to stop you in your tracks. There is no chance that I would still be married if it weren't for Christ. Now, that's because I'm more selfish and jealous. There are people that cannot know Christ and stay married. Don't misunderstand me. But there's no chance that I would be. Because of who I am. And, I'm in the, and I've learned how to be in the middle of an argument with Julie and to be wanting to be right and to have her say something that the Holy Spirit says, do you see that truth? <laughs> right? <laughs> right? This is who we are. This is who he says we are. The Bible says, when the helper comes, who I'll send from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he bears witness about me. He's speaking to you. He's telling you things. He's guiding you. He's directing you. So let me say again this truth. It's better for you that I leave, says Jesus. If I don't leave, my friend won't come, the Holy Spirit. If I go, I'll send him to you. When he comes, he'll expose the error of godless world's way view of sin. Do you see what's being said? You don't have to be ruled by the elephant. You are ruled. You don't have the Holy Spirit saying this stuff. You've hardened your conscience to not hear it through the creation, and, and you don't have him in you. But when you have him in you, what he's doing is he'll expose the error, sin, righteousness, judgment. He'll show you that your refusal to believe in me is the basic sin. That righteousness comes from above. Where does doing right come from? Does it come from us? No, it comes from him. He's the one that makes you be willing to sacrifice. You can explain that evolutionary biology to a degree, but you can't get to the place that people get to when they're in Christ, where the places they're getting fully. But anyway, that I know all the people who are going to email me on that statement right there, I can't wait to talk to you. Okay? Okay? Righteousness comes from above, where I'm with the Father, out of sight and control, out of their sight and control. That judgment takes place of the rulers of this godless world is brought to trial and convicted. You see what the Holy Spirit does? Now let's make it clear. Let's, let's get right to what it really does. Those who live according to their mind to the flesh. See, we've said that when you're a Christian, you get back free will. When you get disconnected from God, you lose free will. When you get back to him, those who set that, this is free will right here. Those who, set, those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. According to the Spirit, set their minds on the things of the Spirit. As a Christian, you can choose which one you're going to do. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. To set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. That was written 2,000 years ago, and this guy found it in a book, or in his research, and wrote it in a book. He found that out. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact, what? The Spirit of God's living in you, helping you, teaching you, guiding you. And when he does that, understand what the Lord does. This is the, this is the founding verse of this church. This is the controlling 
verses of this church in everything that we do. I am praying not only for these disciples, this is Jesus right before he died, but for all those who will ever believe in me through their message, that is us. I pray that they will all be one. Just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you, that they may be in us so that the world will believe that you sent me. Here's what he's saying. The world in its natural state tends towards entropy, destruction, tends towards devastation. But when people get with God, it tends towards a oneness that the world cannot understand. Why? Because people are starting to rule their elephants. We still have a lot of ability to go with them and try and explain it away. But when the Holy Spirit's inside of you, he's bigger than your elephant. And he can rejigger the planks so that you see things differently. I was blind, and now I see. I've given the glory you've given me. What is that? The Holy Spirit. So that they may be one as I in them, you in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. Let me sit, read it from the message. I'm praying not only for them, but also for those who will believe in me because of them and their witness about me. The goal is for all of them to become one heart, one mind, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. So they may be one heart and mind with us. Then the world might believe that you, in fact, sent me because they did something that the world couldn't otherwise do. The same glory you gave me, I gave them, the Holy Spirit. So they'll be as unified to, and as we are. I in them and you in me. They will be mature in this oneness. And give, them the, and, and give the godless world evidence that you've sent me and loved them in the same way you've loved me. Lord, in Jesus' holy and precious name, this congregation comes before you right now. And we do about two or three things right now as we're about to take communion. We recognize it by being narrow-minded. We recognize it by not being empathetic. We recognize it by, by when a friend says something that we don't with because we taste it differently. We recognize how we've broken fellowship. We've broken the ability to speak and to influence, to help them to see something different. And we've broken it by being judgmental and, and not being willing to see who they are, really are. To see, I, I so appreciate, as a conservative, I so appreciate my liberal friends who keep care so high on the radar so that another human impulse of taking advantage of people, a sinful thing, would not take over. I so thank you, God, that you've given me a high care. God, let us all care like you do. But Lord, let us also be holy. Let us also get it right in you. Let us also get connected to you. So we recognize how we've broken things by separating from our brethren. But now we see how important it is to stay in you. The fact of the matter is, is if we didn't stay in you, we would be separating too. In fact, many of us are separating precisely because we're not staying truly, fully, richly, and only in you. And so here, too, we see a brokenness that we've invited in. And so God, with this 
research that doesn't make one of us right and one of us wrong, this research that makes all of us more understanding of one another. We take our faith, thank you, God, and help me to repent of the ways that I have broken things. You hear the breaking going on around the sanctuary. Just break that bread. I know what I've done.